Welcome to another edition of our Law Gospel Devotional. Each Tuesday we look at a passage of Scripture, or sometimes many passages of Scripture, to try and determine where we find God's two words of law and gospel in all of the Scriptures. In case you don't know me, my name is Eric Sorensen. I'm a pastor at Hillside Lutheran Brethren Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, and also contributor to 1517 in numerous ways, including making these videos every Tuesday and co-hosting a podcast called 30 Minutes in the New Testament. Glad to be here with you on this Holy Tuesday of Holy Week. In fact, that is what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be discussing what is Holy Tuesday and what actually goes on that day. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into uh, what happens in the events of that day. Well, uh, you can kind of find it in numerous Gospels, of course, but I'm going to be spending my time looking at um, what Matthew's Gospel has to say happens on Tuesday. Now, it's important to note uh, off the top here that, you know, there is some varying um, opinions about what exactly takes place Monday, what exactly takes place Tuesday. But generally speaking, many people think that basically you could find Tuesday's events in Matthew 21, 23 through 24, 51, which means there's a lot going on. But essentially, if you want to boil it all down, uh, the first events of these last couple days, Sunday with Palm Sunday, Monday, and then Tuesday, is basically Jesus saying, I'm coming in to pick a fight. And, and I think this is very important to note because sometimes when we see the crowd's response on Sunday to Jesus, it's hard for us to understand why by Friday they're so willing to have him crucified. But if you take into account all the things that are leading up to this event as he enters the temple on Monday and basically takes it over, whipping people and overturning tables, and especially if you take into the account the events that happen on this Tuesday of Holy Week, well, it's it becomes more understandable because Jesus consistently over and over again is calling out those with the most power within the religious establishment. Uh, he compares them in the passage today or in that, that chunk in Matthew to disobedient children, to wicked um, tenants, to ungrateful guests. He calls them hypocrites. Multiple times he calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides. And basically he ends up holding them all responsible for the murder of the prophets that God had sent the people throughout all of his history with them. And over and over, he declares to them that their time is coming to an end. And so it becomes a little bit more understandable as Jesus just hands out knockout blow after knockout blow that they would be infuriated and wanting to do something to get rid of him. Of course, that doesn't mean that it's justified by any means whatsoever, but nevertheless, it provides, I think, crucial historical context for us to understand why it is he became so, so hated. That doesn't stop the religious establishment from trying to trip him up. I mean, they come to him, you know, well, is it okay to pay taxes to Caesar, hoping that he'll isolate the Jewish crowd or isolate the Roman crowd? Uh, and of course, he deals with that. They come to him asking about the resurrection and they try to stump him. But, but the reality is Jesus recognizes it's a trap from the beginning. And as a result, every time they try and stump him, he just ends up knocking them out again, as good old Mac did to Mike Tyson back in 
one of my favorite games from my childhood, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. There's just nothing they can do to trip him up. And so, again, very understandable that you see Jesus so rejected by the end of the week by the religious establishment because he's calling them out for their sins. He is indeed um, really booting them with the law. He's beating them with condemnation for all the ways that they have fallen short of the glory of God and refuse to acknowledge it. And yet, I don't want to cover three chapters today. That's far too much. And so to, to kind of summarize it, I want to look over one parable found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. We'll actually pick it up at verse 2. And really what it, what it describes for us is the kingdom being compared to uh, a master that's holding a wedding and initially goes out to invite uh, all the regal guests that he can. And so we pick it up at verse two. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Now, I mean, this, I, I realize this must seem like it's escalating very, very quickly. Uh, and frankly, it's a little unrealistic. But of course, we know what Jesus is doing. Jesus is describing really the history of the Old Testament when God would send prophet after prophet after prophet to them to warn them about what's coming if they don't repent. And yet each and every time they reject the prophets or they stone the prophets or they kill the prophets. And this is a big, big problem. And so really the whole Old Testament period is being summed up here as a time in which God is repeatedly inviting them to come and they repeatedly reject him. And so what will eventually happen? Verse seven, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, incidentally, we do know that this very thing will happen in 70 AD when Rome burns the city of Jerusalem and tears down the temple as Jesus had prophesied. And so essentially part of what Jesus is doing here this week, besides eventually going to take upon himself the sins of the world, is also to declare to the religious establishment of Israel that their time is coming to an end and that judgment will be upon them very soon. That is indeed what will happen just a few decades later when Rome invades or when Rome really, uh, they already have, uh, they already occupy it, but they really invade and take it all over and destroy it. And, and nevertheless, the king is not done. He's not presented as only bringing judgment, but verse eight says, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
in Luke's version of this story found in Luke 14, we're told that uh, the king instructs his servants to compel people to come in. It, the word is actually used to even constrain people to come in, push them in, do whatever you can to get people into my wedding hall. The, ki the father, the, uh, the king is absolutely insistent that one way or another, this party will be full. That is his end goal. If they're going to reject him, well, he'll find somebody else. And who does he find? Well, he finds the good, bad, and the ugly. He finds every kind of person. Indeed, throughout these chapters in Matthew, you're going to hear Jesus say, the tax collectors and the prostitutes come before you because they recognize the word of God coming from John and then from me, and they repented and came while you, absolutely stiff-necked people, refused to repent and come. And so we're, we're, that seems to be very good news. And we'd understand if the story stopped there. As a matter of fact, in Luke's account of this, the story basically does stop there. That God sends out other people to compel Gentiles and tax collectors and prostitutes to come into his kingdom because that's how badly he wants his kingdom filled. And you could say, hooray, hallelujah, that's great news. But Matthew's account is not done. As a matter of fact, we're presented with a problem. The king is presented with a problem as we continue reading on. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So the story doesn't end quite on the high note that we may have expected it to. It ends with a man being tossed out of the wedding party. And so the question comes to us, why on earth was this man thrown out? Well, apparently, it seems he refused the one thing necessary to attend this heavenly banquet, this heavenly wedding. And that was the proper attire. The one thing necessary was proper clothing. And we know from the rest of scripture that this proper clothing is the righteousness of the robes of Christ that only he can provide. And where is that robe given to us? Where is one clothed in the righteousness of Jesus? Well, Galatians 3.27 makes it abundantly clear as it says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have been clothed in Christ in your baptisms. Well, that's quite the picture. You coming in with your raggedy, sin-filled clothes, all stained, all of your rejection. I mean, truth is, all of us to varying degrees have been just like those other people that refuse the invitation many, many times by our sin and by our waywardness. We have no business being at this wedding feast. And yet, by simply receiving the clothes won for us by Jesus, we're made worthy. We belong. We fit in. No matter what background we have, no matter what sins we've committed, we're invited. And not just invited, embraced as part of the family. And so here's the big idea. The sole difference, the sole difference between those who enter heaven and those who don't is what clothes they show up in. 
If you show up simply having received the clothing of righteousness from Jesus Christ by faith, then you are granted entrance into the kingdom of God. On the other hand, if you want to go it alone and you want to show up in the clothes of your own righteousness, now you say, no, nah, I'm good. Well, then what happened to the man in this parable will happen to you. You really have two kinds of righteousness you can choose from. You can choose from the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or you can try to go it alone. You can try and say, I'm good enough and I think I can pass the bar but it will never be good enough to pass the bar. But then we, we would be remiss if we didn't deal with this final statement because I think it's brought a lot of trouble to people. At the very end of the parable, Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. And so the question comes up like, how do I know if I'm one of the chosen? Oh my goodness, I can't tell you how much consternation I have dealt with as a pastor for nearly 14 years as people have fretted about whether they're truly predestined, whether they're elect, whether they're chosen. Oh my goodness, I've been there. I used to have the same kind of anxiety. What's the answer? Again, go back to Galatians 3. Where do we find that we have gotten the proper attire in our Baptism, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ and put on Christ. How do you know you're chosen? You've been baptized. And where God has baptized someone into his family, that means you really are, yes, a child of God. You really are part of his family. You say, that sounds way too simple. I know, isn't that awesome? How simple it really is. Yes, God makes himself that accessible. You don't have to do a thing. You passively receive the clothing of righteousness that Jesus has won for you, and you're good. And so where a long gospel scene in this passage, just to review a little bit and make it more specific, well, of course, the law is all over Holy Tuesday. The religious establishment is condemned, and many times judgment is proclaimed as coming to the people. There's no doubt about that. But of course, the gospel stands out loud and clear as God compels both good and bad, the ugly, everybody, people who have no business coming to a wedding, who have no familial connection, suddenly being brought in, who simply accept the clothing of righteousness won for, the, for them by the events that we'll be observing and celebrating the rest of this Holy Week. So, folks, that is Holy Tuesday for you. That tends to be a day that I don't think many of us would uh, set apart and necessarily observe, and yet there is a lot there to look at and a lot there for us to ponder. I hope you have a wonderful Holy Week. If you can, please get to church. This is the week, man. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. Let me just say, I got to say, Good Friday, there's nothing like it, especially within my circles, Lutheran circles. Goodness gracious, get to a service. Uh, and get to, uh, of course, service on Sunday morning to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord for the forgiveness of our sins and for the hope of eternal life. God's richest blessings to you. We will see you next Tuesday.